Hey everyone, it's Eves. Just wanted to let you know that you'll be hearing an episode from me and an episode from Tracy V. Wilson today. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's August 23rd. Nicholas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were executed on this day in 1927. This happened after World War I in the United States, and tensions in the country were really high. Unemployment was really high. The economy was struggling. There was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. This also happened during the first Red Scare. That was an anti-Bolshevik, anti-anarchist panic One hallmark of the first Red Scare was Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer's massive series of raids and planned deportations of suspected anarchists and radical leftists. The thing that eventually led to these two men being executed was that on April 15th of 1920, two men were shot and killed outside of a shoe factory in South Braintree, Massachusetts. That is southeast of Boston. One of the men was the paymaster at this shoe factory. He had the money for the payroll with him. The other was his guard. And this payroll money, which was more than $15,000, was stolen. Witnesses said that the group of men who committed this murder and robbery looked Italian. Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested after a police officer saw them on a trolley a couple of weeks later and thought that they looked suspicious. Law enforcement also thought that another shoe factory robbery was also connected to the one in Braintree, and these were connected through a series of abandoned cars. The Sacco and Vanzetti trial continues to be regarded as a massive miscarriage of justice. These two men did not speak English very well, and it was very clear from trial transcripts that they did not always understand the questions being asked of them. And the first interpreter that they had was also accused of feeding them inaccurate translations. The judge allowed the prosecutors to present extensive information about the two defendants having refused to register for the draft in World War I, about their anarchist activities, All of these were things that would deeply prejudice the jury against them. The judge also made a number of statements that showed that he was biased against them and already thought that they were guilty, and witnesses for the defense faced a lot of intimidation on the stand. Neither of these men had a criminal record. The evidence against them was all circumstantial, and nobody could explain what happened to this $15,000 after it had been stolen. Neither of the two men had it. Neither of them had made any major purchases to explain what happened to it. But in spite of all that, they were found guilty on July 14th of 1921, and they were sentenced to death. There were huge protests after this that asked for clemency, asked for a new trial, and the process of appeals dragged on for years. During that time, another man actually confessed to the crime in 1925. But once this whole long appeal process had reached its end, a judge sentenced the men to die on April 9th, 1927. At that point, they'd been on death row for seven years. At first, the execution was scheduled for July 10th, and then it was postponed for later in the summer. And this, once again, this sentence prompted huge protests all around the world. The governor of Massachusetts established an advisory committee that included the presidents of Harvard and of MIT, The governor wound up refusing to exercise his power of clemency in this case, and that was something the advisory committee ultimately agreed with. So, in the end, Sacco and Vanzetti were executed on August 23rd of 1927. 
The consensus is that this trial was not fair, but there is still debate about the two men's guilt. The FBI tested Sacco's gun in 1961, and the results suggested that it was used to kill the guard in this crime, but there is no clear evidence tying Vanzetti to the crime at all. In 1977, leading up to the 50th anniversary of their executions, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis named August 23rd of that year Nicholas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti Memorial Day and went on to say, quote, that any stigma and disgrace should be forever removed from the names Nicholas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, from the names of their families and descendants, and so from the name of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I hereby call upon all the people of Massachusetts to pause in their daily endeavors to reflect upon these tragic events that draw from their historic lessons, the resolve to prevent the forces of intolerance, fear, and hatred from ever again uniting to overcome rationality wisdom, and fairness to which our legal system aspires. Thanks to Tari Harrison for her audio work on this podcast, and you can learn more about this in the August 5th, 2009 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can tune in tomorrow for an infamous eruption. Hey guys, welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was August 23rd, 1973. On leave from prison, Jan Erik Olsen entered the Sveriges Credit Bank, a busy bank in Stockholm, Sweden. He was equipped with a submachine gun, ammunition, explosives, a knife, walkie-talkies, a transistor radio, and other materials to assist him in his planned bank robbery. The robbery turned into a six-day hostage crisis that led to the coining of the term Stockholm Syndrome. When he entered the bank, Olsen wore toy glasses, a brown wig, and makeup to disguise his appearance. He spoke English with an American accent, hoping he would be mistaken for a foreigner. He fired his submachine gun at the ceiling, saying, the party has just begun. Olsen took four bank employees hostage. Over the following days, Olsen would make more references to U.S. pop culture. He demanded $710,000 from the police and a getaway car. He also called for his friend Clark Olofsson to be released from prison. Olofsson was in prison for armed robbery and being an accessory in the murder of a police officer. Law enforcement did honor most of Olsson's requests. Olofsson was released from prison and escorted into the bank. And police got them a blue Ford Mustang and the ransom. But police refused to let the hostages ride in the car with Olsen in helmets and bulletproof vests as he demanded for safe passage. So a standoff ensued. The hostage crisis was covered extensively in print and on television. People gave police unsolicited suggestions on how to end the standoff. Meanwhile, inside the bank, the hostages were held inside a vault. 
One of the hostages said that she was more afraid of the policemen than Olsen and Olofsson, and that they were having a good time in the bank. Olsen gave one hostage a wool jacket when she was cold, and he consoled another when she could not get in touch with her family over the phone. He let another leave the vault attached to a rope so she could have some relief from the cramped space. Hostage Sven Sofstrom said that when Olsen treated them well, they could, quote, think of him as an emergency god. When the police commissioner went into the bank to check on the hostages' health, he noted that they were more hostile toward him than their captors. They trusted Olsen and Olofsson to take them away in the car safely, but were scared that the police's actions would cause their death. The captors threatened to harm their hostages, but they never did, although Olofsson did wound a police officer by firing into a hole the police had drilled into the vault. On the night of August 28th, the police sent tear gas into the bank vault and the robbers surrendered. As they exited the building, the hostages wanted to walk out in front so police would not shoot the robbers. The police and the public were confused by the hostages' attachment to their captors. Psychiatrists said that the hostages were grateful that their captors did not kill them and were emotionally indebted to them. One psychologist coined the term Stockholm Syndrome to describe the phenomenon, though it wasn't widely used until later. Olsen and Olofsson both were sentenced to prison, but Olofsson's conviction was overturned in appeals court. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If there are any upcoming days in history that you'd really like me to cover on the show, give us a shout on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thanks for joining me on this trip through history. See you here, same place tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.